Well, good morning once again. Today we continue in our sermon series in uh, the book of James, and the series is titled Spiritual Living. In the first section of James' letter, which we're still in, by the way, James is helping us to understand trials in life, that we are to actually consider it joy when we face various trials. Why? Because God uses our trials and our sufferings to what? To make us more like Jesus Christ. And that when we are suffering a trial, we are to ask not for rescue, but for what? Remember, wisdom from God so that we can better understand and endure with hope and joy. Today, James provides an example of two of the uh, most challenging trials Christians face, living in want and living in plenty, being low in poverty or high in riches. Think you don't struggle with money and possessions? Think again. Our passage is James chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that through James, the half-brother of Jesus, you have inscripturated um, wisdom for us this morning that we can appropriate simply by asking, and you give it to us. I pray that you would soften our hearts to how you would have us apply this teaching to our lives. We ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I don't know about you, but when I was in elementary school, I often daydreamed uh, at my desk. And one of the things I often daydreamed about was, was just counting up how many more years of schooling I had left. Just, just how many more years of study and, and exams. I, I ignorantly thought that the testing would end with the conclusion of schooling. But we're tested all throughout our lives, aren't we? Our jobs test us. Our marriages are tests. Am I the husband that I pledge to be, faithful in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, till death do us part? Your your marriage is a test, not of your own faithfulness, uh, not of your spouse's faithfulness, but of your faithfulness. Your life is an exam. You are being tested in many different ways. Now, usually we don't welcome these tests, or as we call them, trials into our lives. We don't want them, and we tend to want to run from them. But these last few weeks, we've come to see how God uses these trials to transform us, to make us more like Christ, to drive us closer to God himself in search of wisdom. And in in doing that, um, we're drawn near to God who gives us all things. In our passage today, James calls a man blessed for being steadfast under trials and standing the test. 
it's important that your faith be tested. Why? Here's what Warren Wiersbe said. A faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. And perhaps the greatest test you and I will face will lie somewhere between poverty and riches. James shows us that living with plenty and living in want presents their own trials for us. But we will also see that God is faithful towards his children. Therefore, we must be steadfast under trials and testing. We're going to divide our time into three areas. We're going to look at the problem, then the perspective, and then the promise. Let's first look at the problem with poverty. The problem is with poverty is that we can be tempted to curse God. What's a natural response that we have during hard times, especially financial times? We tend to question God. And if we don't get the answers we like, we get angry at God, even to the point, perhaps, of cursing God. Do you remember the story of Job? Job, and we see in the first chapter of the book of Job, he's introduced as a godly, righteous man. He was full of integrity. Uh, He was extremely prosperous. Large family, huge farm, healthy body. And then in the span of a few days, all of his livestock, all of his children, his home, were taken. And then his entire body became covered with painful sores. How would you have responded? Do you recall how Job's wife responded? Do you remember her suggestion? She told Job, why don't you just curse God and die? (laughs) I guess she hadn't yet heard the Tammy Wynette song. Stand by your man. 1969, by the way, in case you're wondering. When you and I find ourselves lacking, be it financial or otherwise, we we open ourselves up to the temptation of cursing God, of denying him, of being faithless, of turning from God to seek our own remedies in life. Now, the Christians to whom James wrote this letter, they were Jews who became Christians. They, They became believers in Christ the Messiah. And because of persecution, they were scattered far away from Jerusalem. They were far from home. They were cut off from their usual employments. They lived in poverty, many of them. And they were tempted to cry out, what's wrong with you, God? Do you not care? Have you ever found yourself asking such things? Maybe you've gone through years of just barely scratching by out here on the East End. Every time you get a dollar ahead, another bill arrives in the mail. You're tempted to think that you're all alone. And surely that God perhaps isn't living up to his part of the bargain. For those of you who are struggling financially, you're tempted to doubt God's care. You're tempted to turn from him and take matters into your own hands. Perhaps your prayers have ceased. From the wisdom of our passage today, begin to see that God tests all of his children. Without this testing, the genuineness of your faith is uncertain. So poverty is one of the great tests of our soul. Will I be steadfast? Will I look to trust in Christ, the anchor of my soul? Now, it may come to you as a bit of surprise, but wealth is just as much a test of our faithfulness, perhaps even more so than poverty. The problem with wealth is that we're tempted to forget God. One commentator writes, according to James, the poor endure the troubles of their poverty. The rich endure the temptation to trust in their wealth rather than God alone. Now, if I had to guess, 
It isn't poverty that tests most of us here. It's riches. Oh, but I'm not wealthy, you say. Well, one, if you live in America, even if you're on food stamps, you live at a level that is far higher than many Christians who live in third world countries. And second, and more importantly, the desire for wealth is just as corrupting as wealth itself. One commentator wrote this. We do not have to be wealthy to desire money. And the desire is as threatening as the actuality. We do not have to possess, to possess much in order to be snared by the delights of possession. You know, America is chock full of middle income people who daily bow down to the God of money and possessions. And God's people are not immune to the lure of wealth and possessions. When God brought ancient Israel to, into the promised land, he warned them. He said be, because of the prosperity uh, that he was giving them, that they would, they would perhaps forget God and turn from him and worship other gods. It came true, as we know. And it can happen to Christians today. We can forget that God has given us everything in Christ Jesus and begin to think that we need more in order to be happy. Wealth is a tremendous burden. It's a very difficult test of one's soul. In the book, Giving, Unlocking the Heart of Good Stewardship, the authors make this point. Money, listen, money is a litmus test of our true character. It is an index of our spiritual lives. Our stewardship of money tells a deep and consequential story. It forms our biography. In a sense, how we relate to money and possessions it's the story of our lives. Jesus warned, you cannot serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, and yet we try. Instead of finding ultimate contentment in Christ, many find contentment in things they can buy, and homes, and cars, and vacations, and expensive dinners out. See, wealth tempts you to find your significance and your security in the assets that you've accumulated, not in God himself. I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. When my oldest daughter, so sweet, I love her, but when she was six or seven, um, she wanted Uggs, you know, the Ugg brand boots. Uh, We got her the Target knockoffs instead. One day I went downstairs and I saw her with a Sharpie pen, about ready to write on the back of the heels of her boots. And I said, honey, what are you doing? Her answer broke my heart. I'm going to write Uggs on my boots. The temptation to find our identity in the things we own begins at a very young age and can continue all throughout our lives unless God does something for us. Let me ask you on a scale of 1 to 10, how much of your significance and security is tied to to money and possessions? Maybe add 3 or 4 to your answer. We tend to be blind to our own problems, don't we? If you're not sure, you can look at your checkbook or your credit card statements. It's true, you're more wealthy than you think you are. And your wealth is a test of your faithfulness to base your identity on Christ alone as you steward God's resources. 
That's the problem with wealth and poverty. Now for the perspective. James presents both the lowly brother and the rich brother with the proper perspective for undergoing these tests. You know, verses 9 and 10 in our little passage point us back to James chapter two, uh, James verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And then James goes on to show that the byproduct of our testing and our trials is Christian maturity, the goal of every Christian. God uses tests to transform us. Now we see, he says to the poor brother, James writes this in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast. Now the Greek word here means to exalt or to glory in. The poor brother is to exalt or, or to take joy in what? He writes, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. James wants the lowly to see beyond his physical circumstances, to comprehend his spiritual circumstances. We're to meditate upon what God has done for us in Christ. God has raised us up in Christ. He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. The believer, though poor now, is simultaneously rich in Christ Jesus. And one day when Christ returns, all the riches of heaven will be shared for all eternity. That's the perspective James wants us with wisdom to see. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul instilled this eternal perspective too. Listen to what he says. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are are seen, but the things that are unseen. But the things that are seen are what? Transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. In the midst of the trials of life, do you have this eternal perspective? James helps us to see that when you're struggling financially, instead of being angry at God, look to all that he has given you. He chose you before the foundations of the earth. And although you were once dead in your sins, he's made you alive in Christ Jesus. And he's pledged his eternal love towards you. Now, James also has words for those who love riches. Verse verse 10 is a parallel of verse 9. James leaves out a few words, but they're implied. I'm going to insert them as I read 9 and 10. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich boast brother boast in his humiliation. Did you see that? The rich man, he too is to look beyond his physical circumstances. Instead of doing an inventory of his physical wealth, James says that he is to undergo a spiritual accounting. The lowly brother is sustained by the awareness of the heights to which he has been lifted in Christ. The rich brother, instead of looking at his rich supply of worldly goods is to look to the depths from which Christ has rescued him. He has to ponder, were it not for the grace of God, he would still be languishing in sin. And how even now, even in his own heart here and now, he is still prone to sin. But thankfully, God's grace covers him still. The rich believer knows that the ground at the foot of the cross is level for all people. And that God has given him or her wealth as a test. 
They ask themselves, will I fall into the temptation of riches or will I remain steadfast under this trial? Will I store away wealth that God has entrusted to me or will I steward it for his purposes? Now, knowing that it can be hard for the wealthy to focus on their great need of God's mercy and grace, James bluntly presses home the reality we need to hear. The rich brother is to boast in his, humili- in his humiliation. Why? Because like a flower of the grass, says James, he will pass away. Have you ever been in the mountains, maybe in the Rockies or something, in the springtime when the the air is cool, the water's there, and the, and the grass turns green, and all the flowers of the grass are in full bloom. It's like one of the most beautiful sights you can behold. But what happens come midsummer and into the fall? The ground dries up in the heat, the grass withers, and the flower fades and falls. Its beauty perishes. James says, so will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. Every human being on the day he or she is born begins to die. That's the truth of it. And when we die, we take nothing we have with us. Now, the poor, they understand their mortality better than the rich, right? See, the poor struggle each and every day for survival, while the rich are shielded from their mortality by their assets. I feel that's why he really had to hammer home towards the rich, the real true perspective that they had. Their life is like a a grass with a flower that will eventually fade away. James wants us all to have what? Wisdom to see our lives from a biblical perspective. He wants us to ponder our mortality and what we cling to in this life, what we chase after. He wants us to find our sense of worth in the exaltation that Christ alone can give us. And he wants us to be humbled by our ongoing daily need of Christ. So we've seen the problems of both plenty and want. We've seen the perspective that we're to have, no matter our station in life. Now let's look at the promise from God. In verse 12, James says that there is a reward for all who pass the test. Look at what he says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I don't know about you, but it kind of reminds me of Psalm 1. You remember Psalm 1? It's of that blessed man who loves God's law, who bears much fruit, and who prospers while the wicked perish. Also kind of reminds us of Jesus' words of the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. Which, where Jesus blesses his disciples in their poverty of spirit and in their hunger for righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and they will be filled. Please understand this. God is a God of utmost blessing. Now, the Greek word for blessed is makarios, which normally means just simply happy. But James here has no ordinary happiness in mind. He is not thinking of fleeting pleasures of a satisfying meal or a good laugh, as good as those things are. He has in mind joy that comes from God, joy that lasts through persecution and trial, because God is in the midst of the trial with his people. In verses 2 through 4 of this chapter, James describes the present benefits of trials. If we stand our tests, Uh, we become more like Jesus. Now in verse 12, 
he names the final result that is to come as we endure our trials. He says we receive the crown of life. You know, Greek cities crowned their heroes to honor them for public service or for reward for some achievement or for their high rank. In Scripture, crowns are splendid, golden things. They signify glory and honor. They they express God's pleasure, God's reward, and the beauty that God bestows. James says that if you remain steadfast under the trials of life, if you stand the test, God will crown you with the crown of life. Now, please know this. These crowns, they're not for like the super Christians. There's not like some limited supply, you know, 20 of them in heaven, and you got to work hard to outdo your Christian neighbor to gain a crown. No, these crowns are for any and all who trust in Christ. Paul tells us so in his second letter to Timothy. Here's what he said. He said, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to who? All who have loved his appearing. When Christians, like their Savior, deny themselves and take up their crosses daily, to the watching world, Right To the watching world, it looks like they're missing out on life, right? When the lowly brother lives in perpetual hardship, when the rich man denies himself, it looks like he's missing out on life in some sense. But in the end, there is the crown of life. A crown that, listen, swallow ups all of life's hardships and makes sense of them all. That is what awaits you. Now, how does this all come about? On the one hand, it's your work, right? You receive the reward of the crown of life by enduring trials and by loving God. But this isn't slavish duty. We remain steadfast under our trials because we love God and because we know that um, we have nowhere else to turn but to God himself. And in our turning to him, we experience God's presence in our life. He comes to us in our trials, and by his spirit, we end up experiencing a peace that passes all understanding. So on the one hand, it's our work, it's your work, but ultimately it's God's work in you and for you. How so? You know, James uses this word promise, and it brings to mind a covenant, covenant promises. You know, marriage is a covenant. It is not a contract. You enter contracts to do what? You sign a contract to cover your rear end when things go bad, right? Verizon has you sign that contract. So if you decide to leave them, they're going to charge you, what, like 200 bucks or something? Unfortunately, many today approach marriage like a contract. The other party doesn't live up to my expectations. Well, then I'm out of here. But marriage is a covenant When you enter into a covenant, you take an oath to be faithful, even when the other party isn't. I, Billy, take you, Betty, to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God in these 
witnesses, to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. That, my friend, is a covenant promise, a covenant commitment. And your relationship with God, if you have one, is based upon a covenant promise to be faithful to you, even if you are unfaithful to him. Which, if we're honest, that includes all of us. None of us have been the people we know we should be. God has every right, if there was a contract between us and him, to rip it up and say, good riddance. But we don't have a contract with God. He's entered into a covenant with us. It's a costly covenant with us. How is it that you and I can ever experience this crown of life if we fail in our steadfastness? Listen, Jesus took upon himself a crown of thorns so that you may receive the crown of life. Though you and I failed to stand the test, Jesus came and stood in our place on our behalf. His perfect life can become yours just by trusting in him. His, his, his wearing that crown of thorns on the cross for our sins can be your forgiveness of sin if you but trust in him. My friends, the gospel tells us that God in grace gives you life in Christ. And with this comes your significance and your security in life. Christian, you were able to stand the test. Why? Because Christ stands with you. You will endure to the end because Christ is faithful to endure with you to the end. You are passing the test because Christ is passing it with you. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) The sooner you and I appreciate and welcome, and live out this wisdom that James is teaching us, all the better, right? (laughs) Christian author Vanitha Rendell Risner helps illustrate James's teaching. In a recent article, she relayed how slow she was to comprehend that God uses trials for our good. Let me finish by reading part of this article. There are so many things I wish someone would have told me at 30, because at 30, I thought I had life figured out. I didn't. Life turned upside down quickly. I wish someone would have said to me, you are holding on to meaningless things, and you are believing in yourself for the wrong reasons. Stop judging your life by your achievements or blessings, whether material or relational or reputational, because none of them will last. What you now consider blessings will be taken away. And when they are, you will discover that being blessed is deeper and more lasting than you can imagine. Now, there's no way I could have been prepared. I could have prepared my 30-year-old self for what lay ahead. How does one prepare for the unknown? I'm glad I didn't know what was coming, but I wish I had known that while God was taking away my earthly treasures, he was giving me something that could never be taken away. He was giving me himself. I wish I had known that trusting God would never be a mistake 
and that he would use every ounce of my pain for my good and his glory. And I wish I had known that life in Christ would continue to get better because Jesus always saves the best wine till the end. My late teens and 20s were marked by unmitigated success. Named valedictorian of my high school class, accepted at every college I applied to. Wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, it didn't happen to me. After college, worked for a prominent financial institution, earned an MBA from a prestigious university, met and married a business school classmate, flourished in my work as I climbed the corporate ladder. Life was glorious from a worldly perspective. I was denied nothing my heart desired. I had everything I wanted, but it came at a price. My once vibrant faith from college took a backseat to my career. My quiet times were mostly on the run, if they happened at all. My friendships were superficial, but I was too busy to care. My faith was shallow, but it seemed good enough. Then I hit my 30s. A serious marriage struggle put us in counseling for years. Our infant son died. I had four miscarriages. I was diagnosed with post-polio syndrome, though my symptoms were just starting. My life, my seemingly perfect life, had taken a huge turn. My struggles forced me to lean on God, and I learned to adjust to a different life, one that was less in the limelight, but I, feel, but I still felt accomplished, just different priorities and accolades. But midway through my 40s, it all fell apart. My husband left for another woman, citing inadequacies of a wife. My children walked away from God in anger, highlighting my failure as a parent. Our home became a place of rage and regret, the opposite of the sanctuary it once was. My arms began failing because of the post-polio, and so I had to stop cooking, scrapbooking, hospitality, to concentrate on self-care. Everything I worked for was gone. The things that I had valued disintegrated. There was not a shred of accomplishment I could cling to. Those days were more painful than I can put into words. My friends and family rallied around me, but inside I was dying. Nothing I had accomplished seemed to matter. I clung to God as I knew that there was nowhere else to turn. And from that desperation came an unexpected delight in God. I craved fellowship with him. His word revived me daily. I prayed more earnestly. And my relationships with others found a newfound authenticity. There was nothing to hide behind. I had no appearances to maintain. Everything was laid bare. And I slowly realized this epic failure was a huge gift. As my life was tested by adversity and failure, I gained a truer sense of who I was. It was not based on my achievements, what people thought of me, what I did or had done. My identity was based on Christ. My successes in life never gave me security. Quite the opposite. They pressured me to keep succeeding. But failure gave me an inner confidence. It has taught me about myself, what I could lean on, what could and would be shaken, and what was unshakable. Amidst my failure, I understood more clearly what constitutes true blessing. True blessing always rests in God himself. What would I tell my 30-year-old self? Trust God. He's going to use everything in your life to draw you closer to him. Don't waste your suffering for it will be the making of your faith. And one day, as your faith becomes sight, you will be grateful for all of it. True words, right? Let's pray. 
Father, we hear that story, we see these words in James, and we, we know in our heart that it's true, and yet we still don't want trials or testings. We're thankful that you don't always give us what we want. Um, we thank you that you make us more like your son, and you draw us near to you during our testings. May each of us here be better equipped to see with a eternal perspective the work that you do in your people, even in the midst of our hardships. As we come to this table, let us be reminded uh, of your mercy and grace towards us, of that covenant love that you have pledged to your people, we pray. Amen.